Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans 5. When you sat down today, you noticed that you got a lot of fun stuff in your seat. I'm really excited. We've actually had these verses for about two months now that I wanted to get into your hands. Romans 5.1. So I think it's important. Every seat should have one. There shouldn't be a lack. Uh, for some reason, you need more. We got more. We can give them to you more. If you'd like more than one, you don't have somebody sitting around you, great, grab one. Doesn't help to ever have it up on the bathroom mirror or something like that. Wherever you find that you occupy some time where you can just glance at it, roll it over in your head, get it memorized. It's fantastic. So if you would, let's take a moment. Let's read it together. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Everybody got that? Pretty simple, but I promise you extremely powerful. So if you need more copies of that, let me know. We've got them here. Get them on the chairs around you. Whatever, whatever you'd like to do, that'd be great. Another thing is, is that I've, I've been trying to encourage you guys to actually print out and get a hold of these so you can mark up the text. Marking up the text of Scripture is very important. Romans chapter 5 is the transition chapter in the book of Romans from justification into the idea of sanctification. And so there are some important points that we need to grab onto when we're looking at this idea. First, because of the means of transition, I want to show you that what we're getting ready to look at today, we're only going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11, and then we're going to pick up on 11 next week as a main heading about the idea of reconciliation that's taking place. And Paul is going to unfold what exactly went down, theologically speaking, between Adam and Jesus and bringing about the idea of this reconciliation. And in doing so, what is the goal of living the Christian life? And then in chapter 6, he's going to teach us how to live the Christian life or the Christ life is the idea. I'm really excited about this. In fact, everything I've been talking about so far has been building up to this point because this is where I wanted to be. I'm really excited about it. But I thought, how in the world are we going to get there? I can't just start in verse 9. All of you scratch your head and be like, what? Now, here's the thing. In past sermons, you've heard me say everything I'm going to say to you today already. Okay? So what I'm telling you is not anything new as far as what we've talked about before in church. But my goal is to hope that you will see it in a new and fresh way so you will understand what Paul wants us to understand and how we move forward. Now, the reason why 5-9 is such an incredible transition in this situation is because if you just were to look at the structure of the book of Romans, you're going to find, I've got it written down here, like chapters 1 through 4, you're going to see the words believe in faith. If you counted them up, you'd find them 30 times in those first four chapters. In chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul uses faith twice, and that happens in, in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5. And he uses believe once, and that happens in chapter 6. Everybody see how that would be a good transition? It's like in the book of Matthew. So many people get, get, get the gospel of Matthew so weird. And it brings up the word basileia in the Greek over and over and over. It means kingdom, 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 kingdom. But the word ecclesia, church, is only mentioned three times. What does that tell you that the book of Matthew is about? The kingdom. See, just understanding how words are used in that situation really sets our minds in, okay, this is how we should be thinking about this because this is the overarching theme that goes on. 
Well, now that Paul has dealt with justification by faith alone and has given you every reason not to let works infiltrate anything about that, he's now going to branch into a greater spectrum and move us forward into sanctification. Now, when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the idea of being set apart, something that has been removed from a situation and placed over for special use or for different use, calling, mission, ministry, what have you. Everybody with me on that? Where people often get confused in this situation is that is what Paul means when he uses the word saved and salvation. Saved and salvation in the book of Romans does not mean justification, declared righteous before God, go to heaven when you die. That's not how Paul uses the word. So the last place in Romans that we saw the word saved or salvation was chapter 1, verse 16. Now you might know that one, right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for the Gentile. That's the, that's the time he uses it. And then we've had nothing about the word salvation. And he's gone through and unfolded the doctrine of justification by faith, and he never brings the word up. But now in verse 9, we see it. Let's read 9, 10, and 11 together. And then what we're going to do is go back and we're going to break down 9 and we're going to talk about everything that's going on. It says here, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So here's what we notice. Look at verse 9. I'm sorry, i got to unclip my notes here. I don't know if you guys are having fun marking up the text. I'm having a ball with it. I love it. Notice in verse 9, much more. He's getting ready to argue from the greater to the lesser. But the idea that you want to think when you see much more, Paul brings it up more here, brings it up in chapter 11, those types of things. You want to think the idea of taking a step up. Much more, take some steps, take some steps, take some steps. And what you're taking a steps what you're taking steps into is the idea of the greater expanse of God's grace towards us because of the work of Christ. Isn't it incredible that the salvation of people honestly has little to do with us? We have a holy and righteous God who hates sin, hates it. Because if it's done anything, it separated us from him, and he loves us. And so in order to take care of the issue, he gives his son who has a righteousness like his own. And the son does the work in taking care of the problem and forgives us completely. So that God's perspective towards sin is taken care of and we can now be in relationship with him without hindrance. It's almost like we're sitting back just watching great things happen all the time. 
Yeah, I made this mess. He's taking care of it. He's taking care of it. He's taking care of it. It's amazing. That's grace. That's beyond what we deserve. Now Paul says much more. Watch what he says. Then having now been justified by his blood. So notice, we've already been declared righteous. We've gone over this, right? Romans 3.19 to the end of 4. Please tell me you're not sick of justification by faith. Notice Paul's not sick of it. He wants to bring it up. If this is a reality that's already happened, and you now have a position of unconditional acceptance before the Father, look what he's saying here. Notice it's by his blood. Remember, that's the effectual tool for sins, plural. For offenses committed against God, the blood is the remedy. That's the tool. Notice it says, we shall be saved. Not since 116 have we seen anything like this. Here it is again, first time, 5-9. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, if you will think back with me to happier times, when we did this incredibly depressing sermon series about the death parade, and some of you felt real uncomfortable about that, and we talked about a lot of really messed up stuff. I don't know if you've noticed but all the messed up stuff that we talked about that the Bible said would happen with a depraved society has become increasingly on the move in the past three or four months. The Bible doesn't lie to us. But when we were going through that, we saw that what the wrath of God is in Romans, the passive wrath of God, is people want to live a certain way without any restraint or authority. And so God says, you want to live that way? Let me move my hand back and let you see what happens. And now we are seeing the consequences of those choices. That's the wrath of God. Now here's an interesting thing. You may look at a verse like this and say, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Well, that's something that's already taken place. Has it? I'll tell you, no, it hasn't. Why is that? If you notice here where it says, we shall be saved, number one, notice that it's a personal inclusive pronoun there. Paul's including himself in the situation with his readers. Notice that shall be saved in the future tense, but a lot of people look at this as it being predictive in nature. This is something that's going to be a guaranteed end. I would say no, it's not predictive. It's actually what's called nomic in the Greek. It is a gnomic future tense in the Greek. And the idea of that is, is that it is a possibility that is now able to happen, but it's not guaranteed. We now have the opportunity to be saved from the wrath of God. Well, what was the wrath of God being poured out on in, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32? Anybody remember? Starts with an S, ends with an N. Sin, there we go. Let's make sure. Everybody's like, what is he talking about? Sin! The wrath of God is poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress their truth or suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Let me ask you a question. Can a born-again believer suppress the truth of God? We do it every day. We do it every day. When we judge ourselves to be more righteous because we're comparing ourselves to another person, Guess what we've done? We've not looked at ourselves honestly or soberly because we haven't compared ourselves with the Scriptures. 
See how different that is? We always want to put ourselves in a position where we can win. And that's a good way to do it. Judging others, that's a good way for you to win. Not in actuality. But if you're living in a fantasy fairy world, it works. Well, in this situation like this, we now have the possibility to be saved from God's wrath. Why? Because when believers sin and they persist in sin, regardless if you're a believer or an unbeliever, the wrath of God can come against you on it. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 5? We all love bringing up that example because it's so crazy. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. He's a believer. All you got to do is read the context. He's fully a born-again believer. Is he messed up? Yeah. Is he in sin? Yeah. Is he being handed over for the wrath of God to take place on him? Yeah. So notice that's a possibility. But here's what Paul's saying is, because you've been justified by the blood, you don't have to live that way. You can actually be saved, rescued, delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered from the power of sin in your life. And this is what we're going to branch into next week. I'm going, to, I'm going to bring out again the PowerPoint that shows us the difference between sins and sin. Okay? Was that good to let you guys know plural and singular? Making sure you're awake. Praise God. Some of you get your masks over your eyes. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, preacher. Sins and sin. And the idea of sins, or that's the multiple offenses that we've committed against God. Sin is the indwelling principle that pushes us to commit sins. It's the depraved nature. It's that part within us that wants to do wrong and lusts after it. So notice, the offenses have been done with by the blood. What we're going to see is, is that sin gets taken care of by the cross. We'll talk more about that next week. So this is the idea of being saved from the wrath of God. Notice it's, that's what we can be saved from. And here's the thing, guys. You might think, well, the wrath of God sounds so terrible. There's no one who disciplines their children that doesn't love them. If your parents didn't love you, they wouldn't discipline you at all. They just let you go run wild. I don't care what they do. Sounds familiar. Sounds like our culture. Moving on. So notice, we're saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, here's the explanation. For if while we were enemies. Now, does everybody remember that? Paul really gave it to us in verses 6, 7, and 8, didn't he? Told us we were helpless. Told us we were ungodly. Told us we were sinners. Thanks, Paul. I think we got the picture, right? But notice, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled. So while we were on the opposite end of the spectrum, God saw fit to make a means possible where he's going to bring you back into right relationship with him. The place where we always should have been, Christ now brings us back into. How is that possible? This is a reason why we're memorizing this verse. We now have peace with God. Why? Because everything that separated us from him and everything that caused us to butt heads with him. Mitch, turn this microphone on real quick. Is it on? Listen to the sound. Those are my knuckles. Gosh, that's a terrible sound. And it hurts too. <laughs> but isn't that what our relationship with God was like before we came to faith in Christ? Constantly butting up against him. Constantly fighting with him. Constantly struggling. And we blame everybody under the sun. 
You know, it's their fault, their fault, their fault, their fault, their fault. Wasn't us. We're just the victims of the situation. Well, notice what he's telling us here. While we were enemies, our ultimate problem is with God. I wish our world would get that. The ultimate problem is with God. We were reconciled to God already through the death of his son. So notice, death truth has to do with the blood. It's the effectual tool that's going on here. Watch this. Much more, take your steps, having been reconciled, already speaking, look what he says, we shall be saved by his life. So if being saved from the wrath of God is what we're being saved from now that we're born again believers in Christ, the life of Jesus Christ is how we're saved from it. Now notice what this doesn't say. This doesn't say that you're saved from the wrath of God by having a better life. That's not what it says. And if there's anything that we have got to get out of our minds, and, and please, I, I, I could just, I don't even have words. Can you believe that? I don't have words about something. We have got to be more discerning in the Christian books that we read. Your best life now? Give me a break. This idea of somehow our flesh is going to get better, that we just need to think differently? All of that is the equivalent of trying to put a rubber band around your wrist and pop yourself when you do something dumb. I think it is important for us to understand, sinning is all the flesh can do. And we need to be saved from it. Saved from the power of sin. Sin, singular, that dwells within us. We got to be saved from it. How do you get saved from the indwelling power of sin in your life that still wants to commit wrong as a Christian? You stop living your life and you let Jesus live his life. Because I will tell you this, Jesus does not want to live my life. He knows my life and he's like, not worth it. Why? Because it's not going to do anything. The old cannot stay. God will not use it. It is corrupt and it is cast away. We're going to get into it more. So notice, we shall be saved by his life. This speaks of the idea of resurrection. This speaks idea of the new life, the Christ life. This actually speaks of the idea of experience. Let me tell you one of my greatest fears about this church. You ready for this? I have no problem being honest with you. I don't have nothing to hide. Number one, you're all going to get disappointed with me at some point. That's fine. I'm going to let you down. For that, I apologize. I don't want to. It's just going to happen. Why? I was probably operating in the flesh, and that's what you should have just expected, okay? But I'm concerned sometimes that we know our doctrine, okay? We've got it down, objectively speaking. But because we're so fearful of being labeled charismatics, or we're so fearful of saying certain things about God actively working in a supernatural way in our lives, we are scared to death of the experience that God wants to lead us in. Now here's the reason why that's scary is because what's wrapped up in that idea of experiencing the life of Christ living through you is in a word, obedience. And if we're all good with knowledge, 
but we're not applying it, seeking to walk in the Spirit in that way so that the Lord can live His life through us, then what that tells me is, is we run the risk of largely being disobedient. Now that's scary. Why is that? Because the Lord doesn't bless that. You can very much be standing in an unremovable state of grace with Him. But because we are scared to death to get out of the boat and walk on the water, that was an experience. You see what I'm saying? Because we're scared to death of that. We could actually be robbed of blessing that we could have had otherwise. I don't know about you, but my hopes for Grace Bible Church is that the grace of God, the love of God, and the power of God would blow the doors off of this place. And it's not because the building is special, it's because the people are walking in the Spirit. The Spirit has the say-so in what we do. Now with that being said, we're going to hit more on justified and then moving into saved. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do before we get into verse 11. Just pull out your chart. I tried to get it where maybe you could fit it into your Bible if you wanted to. I apologize. You're just going to have to fold it. I'm not going to go over the entire chart, but I do want to show you some differences here to help you see there's a difference, okay? There's a, there's a difference in what's going on with the idea of justification and sanctification. Notice at the top, I've given you the distinction or, or the, the passages that deal with those truths. But notice when we talk about justification, declared righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, which forgives sins and delivers from the penalty of spiritual death. But when we talk about what it is to be saved... What does it mean to be saved or to have salvation in Romans? Being saved from the power or principle of sin, singular, that resides in every person which invites the wrath of God against all unrighteousness. Believer or believer, does not matter. God hates sin. And he will discipline his children to get their attention. Notice that the blood of Christ is the effectual tool for justification. The cross of Christ, which we'll get into more, is the effectual tool for sanctification. The big difference with justification, sealing of the human spirit by the Spirit of God. Does everybody know that the human spirit and the Holy Spirit are two different things? Do we know that? Okay, Romans 8.16 will tell us that if we want to know. Two different things. You had a human spirit before you ever met the Holy Spirit. That's important for us to understand. So what happens is, is at the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit comes into the human spirit, completely cleans house of the indwelling sin nature and moves it out. And now, in your spirit, you are made righteous as the Holy Spirit is dwelling there with your human spirit, okay? We'll get more into that as we move on, I promise you. I plan on having graphs and charts and all kinds of fun. I'm a visual learner, so I plan on having fun with that. But when you talk about salvation, what are we talking about here? It's a question of the salvation of the soul or a salvation of the life. What is your soul? Soul, if you wanted to sum it up, essentially, soul is your free will. It's your emotions. It's your will, all wrapped up in that situation and how you make the choices based on the convictions you have in your life. So if you're convinced from the word of God that you shouldn't cheat on your taxes or you shouldn't be speeding, then what you're going to find is, is you're walking in the spirit in that situation because you've submitted your soul to the leading of the spirit that is within you. Does that make sense? That's how this works. Trust me, we're going to get more into it. I don't want to get everybody confused. So how does justification happen? One time by faith alone, but how does process of faith working through love? Now, we, you read about the Holy Spirit, 
Uh, but go down to the next one. A complete and instant objective reality at the moment of faith. But how does salvation happen for the Christian? How does sanctification happen? An appropriation of the already blessings of our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ resulting in experience. Don't be scared of that word. Actually having experiences where the Lord is living his life through you. Do you believe that you have a supernatural God? Do you believe that the Bible is a supernatural book? Do you believe that Christ died a supernatural death? Do you believe, here's a good one, you believe the resurrection was supernatural? So why would our supernatural God, speaking to us through a perfect supernatural book, having a supernatural Savior, who gave a supernatural death, supernatural resurrection, not want to work in a supernatural way in His people? See, we don't have to be scared about this, but we do need to be humble and teachable. And let the Word of God teach us how to live the Christian life. Too often our lives are lived, sin, confess, I'm okay. Sin, confess, I'm okay. Sin, confess, and it's a cycle. Here's the amazing thing. As we walk through this and we learn what the rest of 5, 6, 7, and 8 have to tell us, I'm going to tell you something incredible. You're not going to believe me. You don't have to sin. You don't have to. We choose to. Those are moments of unbelief. But if we understand the doctrines that are put forward here and we appropriate them, we dwell upon them, we let that be what renews our minds, Next thing you know, you look at sin and you think, that's ridiculous. Why would I want to do that? And you actually find that it becomes distasteful. Why? Because if you're walking with the Lord in those situations, you don't sin. 1 John's very clear. Now, some of you are like, I can't imagine any length of time in my life where I don't sin. It might be because we haven't spent enough time breaking apart Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, because Paul tells us it's possible. It's possible. It's possible. Possible because you got better. Possible because you got it into shape. Possible because you tried harder. No. Possible because you rested in everything that Jesus already did for you. Man, it's a beautiful truth. So, with that being said, let's move into verse 11. All that was my introduction. And not only this, now remember, real quick, being saved, that's blessing number seven. It's now possible. We were going through seven blessings that happened out of that. This is now, this is now number seven, great stuff. But not only this, Paul's got more. And here's where it is. But we also exult. Does anybody remember what that word means? We saw it last week. Boast. How many people like to boast? Raise your hand. Thank you. Why didn't everybody raise their hands? Well, I didn't want to brag about it, but <laughs> we love to boast. We can rejoice. You can have joy about this. I've said this to you before. Joy is not a word that we use a lot, right? Till Christmas time comes around. We don't use joy a lot. How are you today? I tell you what, you use the word joyful, like somebody hits somebody with a two by four. What? You're joyful. Yeah. Why? How can you be joyful? Watch this. One, one, one huge truth. Not only this, but we also exult. We boast. We have joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that's the means how it happened to us. Through whom, through Jesus, we have now 
received. Isn't that emphatic? You've already got it. It's already yours. Regardless if you realize it or not, you have it. We've already received what? Look what it says. The reconciliation. You're already back into right relationship with God. Now, why is this point? Help me, God. Why is this point important? Number one, let's see how we got the reconciliation. That's important. We already know the Jesus side of it. But there's something on a grand scale in the world that took place to bring the reconciliation to us. And number two, let's ask the question, what we're supposed to do as a result of the reconciliation? Take your Bible and turn with me over to Romans 11. Just a few pages for you, I'm sure. Romans chapter 11. And I want you to look at verses 11 through 15. If you're familiar with Romans 9, 10, and 11, it deals with the whole idea of what was God's purpose with Israel, and because of their unbelief, the situation that Paul's having to deal with in relation to his kinsmen according to the flesh. And when he gets into chapter 11, he's going to tell us some things about what's happened and why that dictates what's going on in the present and how that plays out into the future. Now, we're not going to get into the future part. We're not worried about that, but you should definitely read that and be familiar with it because there is a future reality and hope for the people of Israel. They have not been cast away. They've not been set aside. And the church most certainly is not the new Israel. If we are, we should all get in new halls that float and go over there and take up residence in the Middle East and claim our land. Okay? But we want to see what's happened. Look at verse 11. I say them, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now the they is the Jews. That's the problem. Is when the Messiah came and introduced himself, their response was, kill him. Okay, now that's a big problem. And so therefore they've stumbled, but they haven't completely fallen away off the boat. Nobody's going to work with them anymore. God's done. He's wiping his hands with them. Finish. No, that's not the case. Notice what he says. May it never be. That's the strong emphasis in the Greek. But by their transgression, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles. Now, unless you're Jewish, that's Ewans and Means. It's all y'all and me. All of us, because they rejected Christ, there was something that happened where God now moved to the nations. Now stop for a second and what we've covered the past few Sundays and think about what's going on with that type of situation. Israel is Yahweh Elohim's chosen people, his portion and his inheritance, his lot. And why is that? Because at the Tower of Babel, with the rebellion that was taking place and refusing to obey God and disperse amongst the nations, God didn't just give them different languages. He didn't just divide them up in different races at that time. That's not just what happened there. He handed them over because of their rebellion to little g gods. Little Elohim created beings who are part of his divine counsel for them to rule over them and to do so justly or face consequences, to steward those civilizations well. Now, because they failed in that measure, in one way or another, God is now reclaiming back the nations for himself. And so the idea of the rejection of the Messiah and Israel is now put on the back burner of history and something brand new has been born into the situation with the church, we are now called to go out and to reclaim people 
for Jesus Christ. Does everybody see this? Yes? Who's asleep? No sleep. Stick with me here. This is so important. It really is. I'm not up here sweating for nothing. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the who? World. Notice that doesn't say just certain people. If it's riches for the world. Think about that. The Jews rejected the Messiah, and what happens? He dies for the sins of the world. Okay, grasp this. It says here, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. It's poured past the Jews and all over the Gentiles. How much more? Everybody see that? What do we think of? Steps. You're stepping up, right? How much greater is the grace of God in understanding this? How much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, when the Jews come to the realization that Jesus Christ actually is their promised Messiah, and they believe, how glorious will the grace of God be displayed in the fact that it had to go through Gentiles in order to get to Jews, which is an extremely humbling proposition, but in doing so, them now coming back into a right relationship with their Messiah. Does everybody see how great that's going to be? Okay. So now moving 13, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. What does that mean? I want you to get this. That's what he's saying. Verse 14, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, save them from the power of sin that's obviously exercised over their lives because in blindness they crucified their Christ. Why does he magnify his ministry? Because the more that the Gentiles walk in fellowship with the Lord, it radiates to the Jewish people about the fellowship they should have been having with Yahweh Elohim this whole time, and only Jesus Christ makes it possible. Does everybody see why this is a big deal? It's really evangelistic towards the Jews. Make them jealous. That's a terrible way to evangelism. No! If you have to make somebody jealous to come to Christ, or if you even have to get them scared of the lake of fire in order to come to Christ, it doesn't matter. You want them to come to faith in Christ. Why? Because without it, they will be in the lake of fire. Jealous or not, torment forever is not a good time. So with that in mind, here's the kicker verse. Verse 15, 4, there's your causal conjunction. If their rejection, who's there? The Jews. Everybody's paying attention. Good, I love it. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the... There it is. If by the Jews rejecting Christ, the entire world now has the possibility to be brought back into a right relationship with God, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, it looks like that the Jewish people are so apostatized in this situation, so cast off by the Lord because of their complete idolatry and rebellion, it's almost like the dead people. Well, how amazing it is when he's going to make those bones live again and bring them in. How did you get reconciliation? Why did it come to you? It came to you because the Jews rejected it. Everybody see that? So man, that's gracious that it pours over. That's a beautiful thing to know how it came about to us that we could be reconciled to a God we were estranged to because of sin. Now, if we're reconciled, why does it matter and what in the world should we do with it? You know this, this passage, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. 
And I would ask you if, you, if you are someone who likes to repetitiously meditate on something, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 is an excellent passage to do so because everything we're going to cover in the next two months is going to be plugged into these four verses here. If you're someone who doesn't like doing something like that, start today. Today is a new day. You can do it, I promise. Just get familiar with it. So here's what it says, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's your location. Right now, you have to answer the question. I'm going to say, are you in Christ? And you don't have to shake your hand, raise your hand, whatever like that. I want you to do it silently in case there's anybody here that's not a believer. But I want you to understand right now, is your location in Christ? If you are in Christ, look what it says. He is a new creature. Or some of your translations will say a new creation. Now, when you talk about something new, what does that mean is not there? The old. In fact, if you look at the next little part, what does it say? The old things passed away. What does it mean to pass away? Dead. Done. Finished. No more. Nothing. New. New things. New things. Like, why are you saying that? Because too often we try to live our Christian life in the old. Why? Well, I'm familiar with it and, you know, I can kind of let people know what I want them to know about me, but not everything about me. We love to hide. I've got pet sins you can't know about. We pet it like a crazy cat or something like that. No, it's gone. It won't amount to anything. There's no usefulness in the eyes of the Lord for that whatsoever. He cannot use your flesh. Well, he can do anything. Yes. But your flesh is dead. 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 And when it's resurrected, we'll be at the rapture. That's when the body becomes useful. Not until then. It's really good. It's sagging. It's really good at hurting. It's really good at failing you. And you have to shave it. Which sometimes drives me crazy. But you get the point. It's maintenance. It's laborious. It's constant. Ugh. You know the amazing thing about the new things? They are. Period. And you don't need to add anything to them. You just need to accept them for the new things that they are. Because it's a new life. It's a new existence. You are a new creation. You are a new creature. How do you get there? I'm just in a new location. I'm in Christ. Before I was outside of Christ. Christ died for me. I believed in the gospel. Now I'm in Christ. And I didn't just get in Christ, but he just started giving me bags of stuff I didn't deserve. You don't even have to carry them. He just lays them at your feet. They're yours. They're yours. They're yours. I don't deserve this. Of course you don't. That's why we throw around this word grace. Notice the old things have passed away. Look what he says moving on from this. Behold, new things have come. Why would you think he'd bring up the idea of new things in one verse if he knew we'd have a hard time getting that? 
Now watch what he does here. Now all these things are from who? Yeah, because that's where the boast is. That's where the joy is and what God has done. Not what I've done. There's no joy in what I've done. But notice, it's all about what God has done. Look what it says. Who, there's the word, everybody see it? Reconciled us to himself through Christ. We exchanged our enemy status to be comrades with him. That's the idea. To come into a right relationship with him. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. There's where the work happened. And, okay, everybody hold on. Here's application time. You ready? Here it is. Please pay attention. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So here's the mind-blowing thing. Regardless if we were ungodly sinners and enemies of God, he still wanted us. And so he made sure and set up a foolproof plan of how to get into relationship with us, and he's commissioned us with a message. A message of reconciliation. A message that you're to keep to yourself? No. What do you think you're supposed to do with that message? Proclaim it. Share it. Tell people. Does anybody see the gaping hole in our society where Christian feet just need to tread? Does everybody see that everybody's fighting for something out here to solve problems, but they don't have Jesus in the mix? How are you going to solve a problem without Christ? How are you going to solve a problem without his word? That's the big problem in every minute or in every movement. We talk about lives mattering. Understand this lives matter to God first because he paid for them. He died for them. And he's telling us, if you want to know the solution to this, it's not legislation. It's not laws, it's not protests, it's not destroying things, it's not hurting people, it's not shooting people in the head, it's not sitting down in the road. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We have the message of reconciliation. Now watch how this goes. He gave us a ministry. Preacher, I don't know what I'm called to. Let me ask you a question. What does 2 Corinthians 5.18 say you're called to? You have a ministry. Well, I don't have a ministry. Yes, you do. It's one of reconciliation. Not one person is exempt from sharing the gospel. Not one. Now, here's why this is important to us to think about application-wise. is because when we start talking about the idea of sharing the gospel and that we have a ministry of reconciliation, obviously that ministry needs to be done. Would you agree? And so we throw hundreds and thousands of dollars to missionaries to go out and do the work. What about Portage? What missionary are we funding to reach Portage? If you say me, you don't know your Bible. Do I have a responsibility to reach people in Portage? Yes, I do. And that's why I have personal conversations with people. That's why my wife and I are talking about tactical plans to befriend our neighbors. Gotcha, girl. But why? Because we just want to sit around and eat barbecued chicken with them all the time? That's grace, but no. So that we can tell them, don't you know that everything has been done? 
And you can be reconciled to a holy God if you simply believe in Jesus Christ. Because the reconciliation is theirs if they will just respond to the message. What freaks me out is because people don't hear the message, they have nothing to respond to. So they react. There's a big difference between a response and a reaction. Let's not confuse those. It sounds the same. I guarantee you it's not. So now we all have a ministry, every single person in this room. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Look what it says in verse 19. Namely, here it is. If you want to know what the message is, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world, everyone, to himself. Now watch this. Not counting their trespasses against them. How in the world is that possible? Because Jesus died for them on the cross. What about those people that don't get saved? Don't they pay for their sins? This isn't a popular opinion, but no. Because 2 Corinthians 5.19 just told me he doesn't count their trespasses against them. Well, why do they still go to the lake of fire? Because they did not believe. What put them in the lake of fire? Unbelief. That's what it was. It wasn't because they went there to pay for their sins. Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. He died for the sins of the world. So if that is a possibility, the issue of sin no longer separates a person from God. The problem is belief and unbelief. And they cannot believe if they do not hear the gospel. This is where the ministry of reconciliation comes into. Your trespasses are not held against you. They've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus and you can be reconciled to God. Do you believe? There's your roadblock. Do you believe? We're going to be doing evangelism training on July 25th and August 1st. They're both Saturdays from 9 to 12. You're all accountable. You'll all be there. I know it. I don't even need to do a sign-up sheet. You're all going to be there. I know it. Mark it now. Is he guilt-tripping me? Kind of, but you don't need to know that, right? But the pivotal question they ask at the end, is there anything that is keeping you from trusting Christ as your Savior right now? These are conversations we need to be having. We'll talk with people about everything, but the most important thing, he is the elephant in our room. And right now is the time for the church to be vocal. I know, I'm riding this horse, it's about to pass out. Here we go. Namely, here's the message. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Notice it's personal. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, that's you and me, the word of reconciliation. There's the commissioning. He's committed this to you. Now watch what it says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though, don't miss the wording, as though God were making an appeal through us. God is making his appeal to the world through you, through me. Let me ask you a question. What is God saying to those around you? If he has secured reconciliation and he's making that appeal to the world through believers in Christ who are in Christ, have that in Christ truth, what are people around you hearing? Are they hearing about the message of reconciliation? Notice that God... We're making his appeal through us. 
We beg, everybody see that word you? I don't, uh, it's a different manuscript that this was translated from. I get that for the NASB. If you've got a New King James, you'll notice it's in italics. That's probably the correct rendering of this. It makes no sense for Paul to tell his readers that he's begging them to be reconciled to Christ. Why? Because they're believers. They're already reconciled. So that makes no sense. But notice what he's saying the message is. We beg on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We beg. We implore. We go after people. We're reasoning with them. We're loving them. We're walking with them through those hard times. We're requesting. We're beseeching. We're imploring them. What is the message? God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. And he's not counting his trespasses or your trespasses against you. So God wants me to let you know. Be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do you tell the jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The message is simple. Everything you need to fulfill the ministry is done. Everybody see that? So what's holding you back? Let's pray. Father, you've entrusted such a great truth to us. Responsibility. This message of reconciliation is not something that you would have given to us if it was impossible to do. Every one of us can communicate the death of Jesus Christ. Not one of us is exempt. We need to contemplate our place in the body of Christ. Fully accepted, fully forgiven, fully blessed. But we still have a ministry. Every single one of us. And it is a message that saves. Father, when this world comes up with solutions and keeps devolving into confusion, may we be encouraged to preach Jesus. May you give us the love and the conviction to share with the world the guilt of sin, the death of Christ, and the free offer of eternal life. Father, may we be unsettled by your Spirit until we come into obedience in this truth. If we are wrestling with it, I pray, Father, you would soothe our anxiety. The gospel that we've been given is a gospel of peace. And I pray, Father, that we would be saved in this situation. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.